1964 New York World's Fair, celebrating man's achievement on a shrinking globe in an expanding universe. I'm Paul Zoll, and these podcasts will be regular updates from the worlds of literature, popular culture, and the old religion. That's Bob Dylan's phrase in relation to some of life's everyday problems, such as anger, loss, and bewilderment. Most of my podcasts will begin with a text, sometimes from a novel, I Love Possessed, sometimes from a movie, The Bride of Frankenstein, sometimes from a song, Telstar, for example. Sometimes from the Bible. Perfect love casts out fear. Sometimes from a TV show. Tonight's story will be a thriller. Each week, I hope to offer you something different. Something entertaining. Something even, well, blood-transfusing. There is a huge parallel universe to ours, which is called Hammer Horror. Now, the specific reference for the neophytes is that Hammer Studios in England, beginning in the early 50s, but not really beginning as far as this country is concerned until the late 1950s, Hammer Studios in England produced a series of very successful commercial horror movies, beginning, as I said, in the late 50s and going through the uh, late 70s, that uh, had an, a massive impact on the unconscious mind of the youth of the world. These Hammer horror films, very cheaply but shrewdly produced in England, most of them in a studio called Bray on the bank of the Thames River outside of London, not very far. These movies, because they were in color, because they were produced by extremely talented people for very little money so they could keep producing them, and because they were um, muscled with tremendous conviction and sincerity by the performers, the directors, the set designers, the musicians, the uh, script writers, the whole crews and the producers, these movies had a massive effect on the adolescent and infantile unconscious of the world all over the place, but especially, needless to say, in England and America. And this particular podcast is the first of many. I could sit here and give talks about Hammer Horror, which, by the way, are being memorialized in early September by a Turner Classic Movie slash Barnes & Noble release of uh, very easily priced uh, Hammer Horror uh, films on one CD. Uh, and also October of 2010 has been declared Hammer Horror Month over at Turner Classic Movies. And almost all of the great Hammer films will be shown in prime time, mostly on Fridays, I believe. During Lent, I almost said, during the month of October. But uh, this uh, particular podcast is one of probably, uh, it may turn out to be many, but not tomorrow. This is a once-off, very specific 
controlled broadcast on Hammer Hara, and it's called today The Hammer and the Cross. And I call it The Hammer and the Cross because uh, uh, it's really Hammer Hara and the Cross. It's a discussion of the symbolism of Christianity in the Hammer Hara cycles. Obviously, it's a subject near to my heart because I adore these movies and have since I was about nine years old. And also, they do have a running thread with very few actual exceptions of something that they might have called the triumph of good over evil or the ultimate conquest by the good of the evil impulse. So I could have called this, you know, the cross and the crown, the the red crescent, the hammer and sickle, but I decided to call it the hammer and the cross because I just want to talk a little bit about the um, Christian symbolism, specifically Christian symbolisms that come into these cheaply produced but very committed and, in my opinion, mostly wonderful horror movies that were produced by Hammer Studios. Uh, if you want to get the full deal, the basic historical context, you need to get a DVD entitled Flesh and Blood, The Hammer Heritage of Horror. And it's a DVD that, golly, it's about two, uh, it's a hundred minutes long, a very well done documentary with scads of excerpts from the movies themselves, which are cleverly edited and put together, together with marvelous interviews and public discussions with the great figures, Michael Carreras and Tony Hines, Peter Cushing, um, Ingrid Pitt, uh, Christopher Lee, uh, Val Guest, the musician James Bernard, etc., etc. And this really wonderful uh, documentary is available on DVD. And it's actually very touching because it's pitched not only to those who want to know about the subject in a realistic, credible documentary way, but also to kids like me. It ultimately concludes in a movie theater with a little boy about 10 looking with mouth open and eyes wide at a great hammer horror film in which good always wins over evil, but there are also beautiful babes and uh, a myth, uh, myths, adult fairy tales, you might almost call them for teenagers or even littler, that have a tremendous hold on the unconscious. But all of that we can take for another time. I want to talk just a little bit about the remarkable use of the cross and of Christian symbolisms. It's a pet study of mine, but it's it's very revealing. It's very funny if you have a kind of openness to ironic humor with these matters. And you probably don't. So you may want to just uh, stop this and go back to my uh, my podcast on the giant crabs. That may be what you're saying to yourself. Go back to the giant crabs. I don't want any of this really social realism and all this religious theological talk. I'm sick and tired of hearing this. I don't want to hear about... Well, wait a minute. This is about the cross as a symbol in hammer horror films. And it's hilarious. It's touching. It's dramatic. It's historic. It's sociological. It's liturgical. And it's very interesting. I'm going to give you a little um, kind of breezing through Bavaria National Geographic lecture on the Christian symbolism in the Hammer horror films. And I hope you'll find it fun and interesting and intriguing. Now, what happens in the history of these movies? 
that the they sort of come onto the world stage with uh, early uh, 50s uh, movies about an invasion from outer space based on an English television character called Dr. Qu Bernard Quatermass. He was not known in America, but was a big sensation on BBC television. And three movies were produced uh, by Hammer. One was called The Creeping Unknown in this country, and one was called... Uh, Let's see, uh, the Quartermass Experiment, or in this country, I saw it as Enemy from Space, and finally Five Million Years to Earth. Uh, but uh, right off the bat, we have symbolism in these, uh, these English uh, sort of uh, parables of, the, of good and evil in a kind of dualistic conflict, which was always won ultimately by some form of symbolic sacrifice, or simply, in many cases, pure symbol alone, detached from the meaning of the symbol. Thus, for example, in the Quatermass Experiment, known to us as the Creeping Unknown, it was an extremely successful movie in the late 50s, the um, alien monster who has taken over a man's body and is now basically a blob, a, a kind of big, uh, a kind of blob, amoeba-like creature crawling all over London, ends up in Westminster Abbey. And it finds itself at the top of one of the uh, kind of uh, uh, crossing Gothic arches of Westminster Abbey, this creature, and is electrocuted in Westminster Abbey. So the censor in England at that time, which was tough, rough stuff, much rougher in England then than here, although that's completely changed, but uh, the monster is electrocuted in Westminster Abbey. Then, in a movie which followed on from the excess, uh, success of the excess of that movie, called X the Unknown, made in 1956. This is the only movie that I know of in which the Church of Scotland gets involved in an alien invasion. Because in Ex the Unknown, a uh, kind of monster from uh, kind of a big, again, giant blob of somewhat unknown origins that eats away your skin. It's like the blob, but it's black and like an oily thing. And it comes out in Scotland and uh, is brought out by uh, British uh, sappers by mistake. And it rolls through the Scottish countryside and attacks a Church of Scotland church. And the hero is a Presbyterian minister who very lovingly and without any regard for his own safety goes out and rescues a little child from X the Unknown, and he's dressed as a dominie or a Presbyterian minister in the Church of Scotland, the Kirk. It's the only horror film I know of in which the Church of Scotland comes out smelling like a rose. Now, I hope you get the, you can get the layers of my meaning exactly as you receive them. Then we come to the beginning of the Great Cycle in 1958, in which Dracula, known to us and all of us saw it in theaters at the time, called Horror of Dracula, bowled us over by its use of technicolor, with technicolor stakings, blood, and bloody fangs. But in this movie, at the ending, which was later repeated in a kind of ersatz, uh, eccentric and very well done uh, manner in uh, Joe Dante's film Gremlins, the first Gremlins, uh, at the end of Horror of Dracula, Professor Van Helsing, played by Christopher uh, P Peter Cushing, corners Dracula, played by Christopher Lee, by using two large candlesticks and putting them together in the form of a cross and cornering the uh, count with then sunlight 
light coming through the windows, which Dr. Van Helsing, uh, Peter Cushing, has pulled down the great high curtains of. So the sun is coming through, blistering the face of Count Dracula, and the cross, the power of good, has kept him completely stilled in the corner, and Dracula melts in front of our eyes, or at least he, he sunburns in front of our eyes with the skin coming off his face, and uh, none of us who saw it will ever forget it, and uh, it is amazing. Then just a, a year or so later in The Hound of the Baskervilles, Peter Cushing, of course, plays uh, Sherlock Holmes against uh, Christopher Lee, who plays Sir Henry Baskerville. And uh, in this very well done um, movie, uh, which looked really, really good, get it, it's wonderful, with great music, great set designs, and a great, of course, uh, uh, Conan Doyle-derived plot. In this, uh, Sherlock Holmes visits a bishop who happens to be an entomologist and says to the bishop, Bishop, I just want you to know that I am fighting evil just as strongly and imperatively as you are. Well, of course, the bishop, played by a very funny English character actor named, named Miles Mallison, is not fighting evil at all. He could care less. He's entirely focused on his entomological habit. So, uh, and his his astronomy. I mean, he's uh, one of these scholar bishops who's really not a bishop at all. But uh, the real bishop is uh, Sherlock Holmes, who addresses the Christian bishop as an equal and vice versa. Uh, the high point of Christian symbolism, is, to some people's way of thinking, in the history of Hamahara, comes in 1960s, The Curse of the Werewolf a wonderful movie in which Oliver Reed plays a poor, uh, what's his name? I think Leon in a Spanish werewolf who uh, turns into a werewolf sadly and obviously everybody's life is destroyed but he was born on Christmas Day and he was baptized and the water stirred and there's a lot of Christian imagery in the script which is very good and of course like a lot of uh, werewolves it was pointed out by a pundit once that why is it that in so many werewolf movies they seem to have a thing about throwing bales of burning hay? That was such a perceptive comment because once again, in Curse of the Werewolf, the, the, the werewolf, when he's trapped, played by poor Oliver Lee in uh, Oliver Reed in very good makeup, starts his only recourse is to get onto top of a of a big tall building and throw bales of burning hay. Uh, there's a lot of Christian symbolism in that, but in fact, I don't always use that as an example because the uh, the uh, it's a very ambivalent movie because poor Oliver Reed is a lovely fellow who's involved in a curse, sort of a genetically carried curse that he cannot help in any way, shape, or form. And rather than being an action of moral heroism, uh, it's a very pathetic and sad story of a misunderstood and victimized man who ultimately loses his life because of a, of a genetic curse. And it's a very sad movie with amazing music by, what was his name? Uh, Benjamin Frankel. It was a, a what's called a, I think it's, um, there's a word for it. Uh, I, I always want to say Arnold Schoenberg. It's, it's the Arnold Schoenberg kind of music that strikes the average listener as a very, very um, uh, dissonant, but it's actually very good. But, but the same director, Terence Fisher, comes back the same year and he does Brides of Dracula, which may be the high point of the kind of good over evil Christian symbolism that these movies are often um, really commended for or despised about. Uh, they're sort of black and white, but they have this tremendous uh, punting back always on Christian symbolism. And in this case, uh, the uh, uh, Peter Cushing, who plays Van Helsing, uh, has to fight a very um, seductive, uh, seductive uh, vampire. What's his name? 
Baron Meister, played by the actor David Peel. And the only way he can finally get uh, this very seductive and strong young, uh, looking for the blood of, you know, the young, uh, he gets him by, by um, uh, starting a fire uh, on the uh, sails of a uh, windmill, the prongs of which, of course, form a cross, almost like a kind of Columbus cross. And he starts a fire. First, he gets the the uh, vampire Baron Meinster caught in the shadow under the moon of these four pronged uh, sails that form over the windmill a cross. But then he burns them up, and they become a flaming cross in which the uh, vampire under the uh, blood of the moon is uh, melted and destroyed because of the power of the cross on the windmill in Brides of Dracula. It is sensational. And what is so marvelous about it from someone with my perspective, it's entirely sincere. It's totally sincere. Later on, you'll find the same people, the same basic teammates of the of the group that made these movies and in Captain Clegg from 1962, which we knew as Night Creatures. Uh, Peter Cushing plays sort of in Jamaica Inn style, like Charlton, uh, uh, Charles Lawton. He plays a clergyman, a Church of England vicar, who is actually a smuggler by night. He's really not all that bad a guy, but whose disguise is as Dr. Bliss. Dr. Bliss is his disguise being a very sort of sweet, not, not a, because he's a, basically a good guy, interestingly enough. But Dr. Bliss, whose real name is Captain Clegg, uh, he has an agenda. And uh, Peter Cushing carries off a pretty convincing uh, uh, portrait of a nice uh, Anglican clergyman with a major secret. Now, These Are the Damned, which is the Joseph Losey Hammer Horror, and which was recently uh, put out on DVD. We knew it as The Damned, or These Are the Damned, about nuclear-contaminated children. It's a very fine film, but I just want to point out that the key chase scene occurs in the large cemetery in the island of Portland off of the coast of Dorset, England, where one of the most wonderful Georgian preaching interior churches, I think it's called uh, St. Andrew Reform Churches. It was the garrison church for the British garrison on the island of Portland, which is often where movies related to sappers and unexploded mines are filmed. But anyway, they filmed the key chase scene of this hammer one in the large and ancient 18th century graveyard of a wonderful Protestant church interior. I just know it because I love it and I was there. But now we haven't by any means finished because then we get to... Um Dracula, a Prince of Darkness, where we have the lead, uh, good, uh, doing good guys, Father Sandor, and Father Sandor, between a cross and a shotgun, is able to subdue uh, the vampire. The movie is good, but not great, in my opinion. It's rather vicious in the early stages of it, but in any event, the uh, Dracula is completely subdued by a man of the church, Father Sandor. And then, only, um, uh, only a few months later, they made a wonderful movie called The Reptile with a different crew, but the same basic approach and the same sets and so forth, in which a poor doctor of theology, a former missionary to India, has a daughter who is turned into a snake monthly uh, by a kind of hanger-on who came from an obscure, thuggy-type 
reptile cult from India and who this poor missionary, a doctor of theology, brought back with him. And his, his daughter is poisoned by it and she turns into a snake and a murderous snake. It's very good. And you're going to, as you're going to see, it's on the TCM October is Hammer Horror Month. My favorite line from that movie is, I've often used it um, when people say, oh, Dr. Zoll, what is your specialty? And uh, I always quote the line where um, a, uh, a man has been terribly mauled by the reptile, who is the daughter of the missionary, the theologian, who can't help him, his daughter, and is in a terrible bind, needless to say, because he can't give away his daughter, but nor can he kill his daughter. He's the man. What can he do? And uh, she's just turned into a snake, and, and a poor victim is writhing on the floor with poison. And uh, the hero, the young, rather antiseptic hero, shouts downstairs in their big house and says, uh, but, Mr. So-and-so, you're a doctor. Can't you help this poor man. And he looks up the father, played by the Ulsterman Noel Willman, and he looks up and he says, Sir, I am a doctor of theology. Well, I've often been tempted to use that when uh, people want to know who I am. But the reptile has Christian imagery, and uh, unfortunately, the reptile is finally done in, uh, and the good uh, f husband and wife escape, but not the father. Now, the most, the high point of all Hammer films from a Christian iconog iconographical perspective is The Devil Rides Out. 1968, uh, it uh, was in the same era as The Exorcist, and it was uh, called in this country The Devil's Bride, and despite its uh, poor and uh, really lame special effects in the middle, you have to just pretend they're not there because they, they didn't have any budget to do the what we consider state-of-the-art special effects, and certainly now with computer-generated uh, imaging. But um, in that case, The Devil Rides Out was a very classically done, with tremendously classical composition and a classical script and classical editing and classical performances featuring Christopher Lee uh, and Charles Gray, the Rocky Horror Picture Show professor, uh, in an absolutely brilliant face-off between the, the forces of good, played by a French nobleman, Christopher Lee, and the forces of ill, uh, the Satanists, led by Mokata. And in this Devil Rides Out, based on a wonderful book by Dennis Wheatley, I mentioned him before, and scripted by Richard Matheson. The very, very Christian symbols of the uh, whole um, um, of, of this genre are most plainly stated. The name of Jesus Christ is used with astonishing um, precision and explicit healing character in one scene. In another scene, the Duke and another sort of male ingenue, as it were, a hero, drive their car into a devil's a midnight mass, that is to say, a devil's witch's mass, a sabbat, on Salisbury Plain. And they drive their car with light, and the uh, hero, the count, the French count, the good man, is reciting a psalm uh, as he stands, uh, as the other man drives his old car through these orgiastic, so-called, it's pretty lame, but these people dressed up in white robes, supposedly doing something they oughtn't to do. And uh, he takes a cross because the devil happens to be crouching, has appeared, the Lord, the Lord of Misrule has appeared on a rock overlooking everything, and and uh, Christopher Lee takes his cross and 
hurls it at the devil and there's an explosion and the devil disappears. And uh, the Lord's Prayer comes into it, the Catechism, uh, you name it. Uh, and finally, uh, the devil is uh, absolutely and completely destroyed before the power of the cross at the very end scene when the Makata and the worshipers are consumed by fire and a massive sort of neon cross appears on the wall and uh, they are vanquished. That's the high point of the hammer and the cross, but not the only one. I haven't finished. There are just a few more. Isn't this interesting? I mean, to me, it's just absolutely, it's funny, it's fascinating, it's delightful, it's fun, and it's also rather moving, because the people that made these movies obviously were still engaged in a culture, and it wasn't very long ago, in which the way to deal with uh, palpable evil is to use the symbols of all that we know to be palpable good. And this would be, in most cases, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as expressed in the crucifix. In Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, 1968, which I find quite unconvincing uh, because of a number of reasons, but see it because the Monsignor is the is the uh, uh, play by Rupert Davies the Catholic Monsignor is the is the good guy and is also an evil priest but the good priest uh, is able to get his niece released from the power ultimately of the devil and there's a great scene when her lover her, the niece's boyfriend who's supposed to look like a rock star from the era in 1968 tries to kill Dracula with a stake and he puts it in him and it doesn't do any good he can't get the stake inside the, the chest of the vampire why we learn because he's not a believer He's sort of a flower child, kind of a hippie who doesn't really believe in God and the church and Christ. He, he doesn't have a faith. He can't do it. And because he has no faith, he can't defeat the evil. And he, he's, it's what an amazing script that was written by uh, Tony Hines, who I believe was the son of Will Hammer, one of the founders. But in any event, he's unable to fight the vampire because he doesn't believe. And only at the very end, when he sort of falls on his knees before the, the power of evil and he sees Dracula destroyed in a very dramatic and somewhat not so great special effects ending he says the lord's prayer so that is another uh, modest high point of dracula of of hammer religiosity in taste the blood of dracula which is very anti-church that's a very good movie 1970 and they sort of press the limit they they have a series of four fathers who drag their children to church on sundays in the church of england and are really hypocrites who under the guise of doing philanthropic good works in a poor section of london are really going to a brothel and prancing around with young women and prostitutes and so forth and so on. They appear to be so great, but they're actually awful. And one of them may even be guilty of sexual abuse of his teenage daughter, played by Linda Hayden, who is very, very what the world now calls hot in those days. And uh, uh, these uh, hypocritical men um, are really uh, easy prey to their feckless and disoriented and tragically lost teenage children in the Victorian era who then become victims of Count Dracula, who gets them one after another. And all these uh, these uh, uh, children are taken over by the Dracula, who has them go and kill their fathers. I mean, this is Freudian times 12. And each of the teenage children, mainly through the ministrations of Dracula's helper, Linda Hayden, kill their fathers. And it's just awful. And only at the very end, however, because even in 1970, you can't get so far away because what else is a symbol of good? I mean, is it the United States Constitution? Well, maybe, but not in England. Is it Abraham Lincoln? Well, not in England at the time. What, what are you going to substitute? Is it going to be uh, Brigitte Bardot and animal rights? Is it going to be a mink you're going to throw at them? Is it going to be a whale? Well, you know, what can you do against evil? Well, you have to go back to what little you know. And even here, when the hypocrisy of the 
of the churchmen is under is revealed and they pay this bitter penalty at the very end still the one young man of the group who has not yet been infected by the vampire all he can think of finally to do is to is to keep dracula away using a cross and keeping him out uh, keeping him inside the church the abandoned desanctified church where he has been operating and he keeps him there by putting a cross through kind of two uh, pieces of uh, two uh, pieces of metal in the shape of a cross through the locks of the doors and then uh, a huge window with the picture of Christ the crucifix blows open the light comes in the man with his cross keeps is keeping Dracula at bay and uh, Linda Hayden or whoever it is I think it's Linda Hayden still at that point she he is freed from the curse, Dracula is destroyed, and this wonderful, wonderful music, it's the high point of the music of James Bernard. James Bernard was the sort of house composer for most of the great Hammer Horror films, though not all, but many. And James Bernard music in the closing credits, where clearly the power of God has overcome the power of the devil, and James Bernard talked about this, so I'm not putting words in his mouth. He was a great believer in this. And uh, the music is so triumphant and so positive and so really moving. I, it, it stands up with the best music. No wonder that this DVD video called Flesh and Blood, the Hammer Heritage of Horror, used James Bernard's score for the ending credits of Taste the Blood of Dracula as the ending uh, credits of the great uh, documentary on the history of Hammer Horror. Are you having fun? Are you having fun? Well, I could talk about The Vampire Lovers, in which uh, John Finch, the actor who later played in a trillion other things, takes across uh, Madeline, uh, what's her name now? Let's see. Uh, 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 there's been a sort of an assistant vampire. Uh, she's become an assistant to the awful vampire, and she, he, he, he knows that he's lost. She's going to get him and seduce him and make him into a vampire. And he all he has is a cross, and he throws it at her, and poof, she disappears. That's as late as 1970, and there's strong lesbian subtext in that movie. That movie is a very, very countercultural movie for its era, and I think it's a good movie. But anyway, uh, I don't recommend it, but um, I have to say that. But Nevertheless, uh, when he throws that cross through that particular vampire, she's dead. She's toast. And, and then even in Twins of Evil, which in 1971 was really, it wasn't really controversial, but they thought they were being naughty because it's all about a group of Puritans. Twins of Evil is, you can get it on tape. I think it's going to be released in a few months, but it's not out, but I have a copy. Uh, uh, it's all about a group of Puritans, Christian Puritans, who ride around the countryside burning supposed witches and supposed victims of vampires at the stake. Most of them are not guilty of anything, and they're the worst kind of self-righteous, hypocritical, dreadful. It's an absolute picture of what people people think Ted Haggard was like and focus on the family. It's a, sort of everybody's picture of what these groups are like takes place in Twins of Evil in the 17th century. And uh, in fact, they are uptight and they're awful. But nevertheless, at the end, in a situation of great jeopardy where the evil Count Karnstein and his awful uh, uh, vampire female assistant who's one of the twins of evil uh, uh, have everybody destroyed. They've just created so much mayhem and the hypocrites, the Puritans haven't been able to get to the root of this thing. We, the viewers, know that there really is a problem even though the church is just as much a problem almost, have been responsible for almost as many innocent victims as the vampires have but finally at the very end using unbelievably obvious sort of almost like from an ad, a VH, you know, a, a music video or something, the cross 
uh, is actually the only thing that can ultimately destroy the vampire. Rather innovative of its historical context, but the cross is finally that thing which destroys, coupled with the stake through the heart, the evil Count Karnstein. And even Peter Cushing uh, redeems himself. The leader of the Puritans, Gustav Weil, uh, redeems himself at the end of Twins of Evil. There is a great line, by the way, in Twins of Evil, when, uh, uh, by the way, the Twins of Evil has all, several different possible meanings. You'll have to see it and you'll know immediately what I mean when I say that and what they meant when they made the movie. Uh, but uh, at one point, with such conviction, this actor has an impossible line and he's such a pro that he says, and by the way, I'm going to go on for five minutes more because I'm almost finished, but I want to finish this podcast. So this is a little bit longer than usual. Peter Cushing sort of looks up at heaven and he says, The Lord has sent me Twins of evil. Well, uh, a terrible line. They had to get it in there because of the title. They just had to, had to, had to. And he pulls it off. Well, the cross figures in Vampire Circus, which is very good, rather lurid little film of 1972, which has never been released to DVD in this country, and Satanic Rites of Dracula, where Dracula is killed by a hawthorn bush, which is the symbol of the crown of thorns, and Van Helsing, a kill played by, of course, Peter Cushing against Christopher Lee's Dracula in the Satanic Rites of Dracula 1973, which I believe we knew as Count Dracula and his Vampire Bride. I saw it in New York on first run, really important first run there. Uh, but uh, there he uses the hawthorn tree uh, as a symbol of the crown of thorns. And the last great hammer reference to the cross, it's a really very touching one. And I don't have any problem with it at all. But some people would say that at this point, hammer had become universalistic. Because in the movie, The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which was the last official Dracula film, did not star Christopher Lee because he was tired, but it did star Peter Cushing as Van Helsing in The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires from 74, which we knew as The Seven Brothers Meet Dracula. That's how I saw it in New York at a theater. The Seven Brothers Meet Dracula. It's a kung fu vampire film. And it is, surprisingly enough, very effective. But I'm not going to go into that except to say there's one scene when Professor Van Helsing is instructing the seven brothers who are karate excerpts, by the way, the seven brothers uh, and one sister, as all the ads always said, they, there's one sister and she's the best of them all. So they're seven brothers and they're one sister who are being instructed uh, before they are going to meet the vampires and how to kill the vampire, especially Count Dracula, who now has become a priest in a, a, a Chinese temple. Well, he has this great line, and uh, you have to see it to believe it. He, 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 we've already learned that the Buddha, the statue of the Buddha, was successful in uh, protecting one villager against a vampire and in destroying his vampire mask, and therefore himself. And this is how it goes. Peter Cushing talking to the seven brothers and their one sister. That's what the trailer always says. The, Peter Cushing says, in, We in Europe... The vampire is always uh, has an aversion to anything that represents good. For example, for us, it has always been the image of the crucifix that has been sufficient to ward off the vampire. For you, in the East, it will be the image of the Lord Buddha. Well, I always, uh, of course, when I saw it, I, I hooted, I smiled, respectfully, but I smiled, because here, obviously, a movie that was made in China, it was a co-thing co with Hong Kong, the Shaw, Run Run Shaw, Run Run Shaw, and it was going to be distributed all over the world, but especially in Asia. Of course he would say that. That would have been the sensitive and right thing to say. But, you know, I thought to myself, well, that's kind of neat. 
I mean, after all, he admits that in the culture where the cross has tremendous resonance for good, it is sufficient to defeat the vampire. But in a culture where the Buddha is the symbol of good and uh, selflessness, wouldn't that, and, and love in its own Buddhist format, would not that be the symbol which would be prove uh, terminal to the vampire? In fact, uh, it goes down pretty well, that scene, and you may say, oh my gosh, uh, don't let down the side. I disagree with you. See the scene. It's gentle, it's touching, it's respectful, it's dear, and it's a little bit funny. And to watch what happens when the vampires are confronted with the image of Buddha, they sort of look like vampires in Western, in Hollywood films, confronted with uh, garlic. They, their, their noses crinkle up. They look like they're going to sneeze. They have all these facial mannerisms when they see the image of the Lord Buddha that are very, very both wonderful, moving, and hilarious. Well, thank you for listening. This was my talk entitled The Hammer and the Cross, and it was a National Geographic lecture delivered at Constitution Hall, Washington, D.C., on the Christian imagery of the Hammer horror films. Happy Halloween, and God bless you.